Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of The Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Asian Fixed Income and Hong Kong Investments. Well, Marty, we have been incredibly busy with the events that are playing out in Europe, rumors of a potential lockdown here in Hong Kong, regulatory issues which are seeing Chinese equities being heavily sold off, but really a lot of the financial headlines we're seeing about China involve also debt of one form or another. Whether it's a real estate company that borrowed too much and got into trouble, or a new macro policy aiming to rein in leverage within the banking system, or even some innovative digital solutions to improve access to credit for consumers. So it seems like debt continues to be a very strong focus for investors right now. This against the backdrop of the global pandemic, especially with the increased cases we're seeing in China. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Catherine. And, and you know, I think one of the things that I know we'll touch on here is it's really important to differentiate between what we call good debt and bad debt. You know, and if I can speak about that very generally for a minute, while companies going under and filing for bankruptcy may be newsworthy, this can also help in reducing the so-called moral hazard if it means that the credit risk being priced in is actually something that investors are looking at. Yeah, and of course, Marty, being in fixed income, you know all too well that another large example of where debt is in fact a positive force is China's onshore bond market. So it stands, correct me if I'm wrong, around 20 trillion, right, in outstanding issuance. It's a domestic bond market, which has nearly doubled over the last five years. Now the second biggest bond market in the world behind the United States. No, you got that right. And, and look, for fixed income investors, we are witnessing what is going to be a huge opportunity, and it's taking shape right here and right now. You know, but accessing the debt markets in China, it, it's not always so easy. And, and I think failing to do your research appropriately, it can really lead to a mispricing of the risk if you're not careful. And for investors, while the bond market story is a big one, debt comes up in many other ways in China. For one, macro leverage is a concern right across the economy. At the same time, the rise of digital payments and online lending has helped to broaden financial inclusion whilst amplifying consumer spending as a driving force for the economy. So, Marty, we clearly won't be able to cover every aspect of debt in China in one podcast. But what we do plan to do here is to speak with a really interesting and diverse group of Fidelity's analysts, as well as portfolio managers, about this very topic. So, Marty, what have you got for us to kick us off? Thanks, Catherine. I've got an on-the-ground interview with what's driving China's bond market, which has been one of the best-performing government bond markets so far this year. I caught up with Olivia He, a fixed income portfolio manager based in Shanghai, so that we could find out more. Hi, Olivia. Can you start by telling me why is China's onshore bond market performed so well this year compared with the other major markets? Uh, hi, Marty. China bond market indeed performed quite well start of the year. Um, China aggregate bond index year-to-date delivered a positive 0.3% absolute return, while DM rates sold off on central bank hikes concern. Uh, I think there are 
partly like three reasons behind it. Uh, first is like um, the, the low correlation um, between China markets versus the global other markets in the, in the world, given capital account control and um, independent monetary policy. Um, the second reason is like um, China, China's bond markets still provide relatively higher carry compared with DM current, uh, countries. Um, the third reason might be uh, we still have a relatively stable currency FX market compared with other EM countries, not to mention the ruble. The other thing that we hear a lot about is policy divergence. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk about the impact there. I think China tightened ahead of the cycle uh, when everyone is loosening and doing quantitative easing and the economy is bouncing back given better COVID control um, as we seen last year and the year before. Um, but as we're experiencing a different cycle and market and economy is going downturn and China rates are basically the only positive thing that we are seeing uh, today. As you already seen, we have a property down cycle um, during last year and deleveraging happening in several sectors and um, including TMT. So uh, it's a different kind of situation. One of the other things we talk about quite a bit which is something that's a little unique to the Chinese market compared to, say, the U.S. and European markets, are this concept of an onshore bond market, um, which is local debt uh, denominated in, 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 in local currency. How important is that local bond market to the broader development of the economy and the overall financial system? The onshore bond market is actually quite big. It's growing more than China GDP. Um, it's now the size is around RMB 130 trillion. Uh, it, and more than half of them are rates. So it's, uh, as you can think, it's a relatively good financing platform for the governments. Um, it will also give investors a way to support the real economy besides the equity market uh, with relatively lower risk and more stabilized return. Um, for high yield issuers though, there's a big default risk um, because unlike bank loans, you cannot just go to a bank and ask for another round of refinancing. You still have to uh, follow some uh, open market rules. What do you think the future growth opportunities are for the Chinese bond market and what are those likely to be? Uh, yes, so I think there are um, a lot of things to look forward to. We will have more tools and opportunities uh, for foreign investors to invest in China. As we've already seen like Bond Connect, um, Northbound and also Southbound. Um, the second thing I think I can think of is, uh, I think it, because China, unlike other markets, they have like interbank bond market and also the exchange traded market. I think um, it will break the bridge the gap between the two markets and the, those two will involve to become one where it's more easy to trade and transact between the two markets. Um, the third thing is actually the green bond. The size of the green bond market now is 1.8 trillion RMB. It almost doubled since I think 2019 or 2020. Um, and green bonds actually perform quite well too. And given the situation now and also China's policy attitude towards ESG, I, I will think it, it will be a fast developing um, a, a SEC market in the China, a great China bond market. As we know, sustainability is so critical to China's overall uh, policy agenda. And, and I think you know it, it's important for investors to realize too. 
Olivia, thank you so much for your time today. That was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. Marty, really interesting that Olivia mentions green bonds because they're definitely on the rise, uh, both in terms of the size of the market as well as the performance. And of course, we recently had the two sessions, which is the government's um, you know, very important meetings and Premier Li Keqiang also emphasised the importance of green technology and, and energy. So were you actually surprised at what came out of that meeting or it was very much you know, sort of expected, especially with that energy tilt? I think China's done a really good job of telegraphing the direction of travel here. And if you think about common prosperity and you think about you know, this, this sort of investment in renewables and in green technology, the Chinese government has really given us indications over time that they're very focused on this, if not through their own commitment to, to net zero. Um, but boy, Catherine, what a time to be thinking about sustainability, especially with the volatility in the markets that we're experiencing right now, across debt and equities, if I'm honest, um, and just thinking about how sustainability comes to life, right? Totally. And, and to, to talk more about this, we're joined now by George Eftisophilus, one of our Singapore-based multi-asset portfolio managers. I feel like I haven't seen you in so long. I actually really miss you. How are you? I'm very good, Catherine. How about yourself? I'll pass you over to Marty, but it's, um, I'm sure you have a lot to talk about in terms of this topic, both from an equities as well as a fixed income perspective. Yeah. And George, my thanks for joining us today as well. It's great to see you. Um, you invest across equities and fixed income, and, and, and particularly in the Asia sphere, but also around the world. What do you think about what Olivia had to say about the attractiveness of China's onshore bond? As a multi-asset investor, you know, a key question has been, where do you go for defensiveness? You look at the typical areas of defensiveness, US treasuries, bonds, high-quality investment-grade bonds in the West. They've all had a pretty difficult time at times when investors needed that defensiveness. They have not delivered. And also, their income generation has been quite poor. Come to China, come to Chinese onshore government bonds, they have been one of the best performing. And not just this year, it's been an ongoing theme. It's been on the past one, two, and almost three years now that they have been one of the best performing, both in absolute terms and on a risk-adjusted basis. Why is that? Um, the thesis for investing in China government bonds um, has been the case until now and continues to be the case, and that is they offer very attractive nominal yields and they also offer very attractive real yields. The West is fighting very, very high inflation numbers, inflations, inflation numbers that I have not seen since, since I've been on this, on this earth. So uh, China, on the other hand, very, very different story. Um, China does not have any strong inflation forces. If anything, the latest CPI numbers have been on the lower on the lower end. And that means that whilst in treasuries we have seen you know, 10 year bonds moving upwards somewhat, getting close to around 2%, and one would argue that, you know what, now yield differentials are shrinking, are converging between China and treasuries. If you look on a real yield basis, which in many cases is probably kind of the, the, the more um, interesting way um, to look at it, actually they have been diverging further and China government bond CGBs have been coming a low more attractive. So attractive normal yields, attractive real yields, lower volatility, diversification, um, what's not to like, and uh, yeah, clear, clearly an, an important aspect for us. Um, George, if I can just jump in there. Um, there's another aspect that I've been reading about um, that I think uh, our macro team has been discussing, which is the volatility 
of China government bonds versus U.S. treasuries. Is that is that an attractiveness to you? Because I think what I've been reading is that actually, if you look at both the returns and the volatility, they're both increasing levels of attractiveness for China government bonds. Is that right? Um, yes, as I said, sort of both on a total return basis and a risk-adjusted basis, um, China stands out very positive versus um, other markets. So definitely ticks the box on that front. And China is easing. China started easing a few months ago. When do you want to hold government bonds for a particular country? That's when that country is easing. That is not when that particular country is is is, is on a hiking cycle, which is what is slowly starting to happen um, in, in, in the Western world, or has already happened in some places. George, so we don't have as many inflationary challenges in China. Plus, we're at a different stage of policy in terms of the PBOC easing versus other central banks. But let's face it, the Chinese property sector is accountable for a significant portion of the country's debt problem. And, and time and time again, investors and clients do ask us about this. So in your view, what's been happening in the sector of late, especially given last year's regulatory crackdown? Absolutely. The most unloved market um, in, in, in the world today, sort of China property, whether you look on the credit side or the equity side. What's happened? Sort of mid of 2021, you've had um, Beijing and China policymakers essentially wanting to deleverage um, their economy because they could afford to, because China did not go through a recession around the COVID period. So that afforded them to be able to structurally press on with, with a deleveraging campaign. Property has a lot of leverage. So that was one of the obvious areas um, to tackle. And what we have seen since then is very negative sentiment in the property market. Um, we have seen property prices meaningfully correct, volumes meaningfully correct, and as a result, both equity prices and bond prices collapse. You look at the, the China High Yield Property Index today, and most of the bonds are either trading at stressed, very stressed, or distressed levels. For us, two key questions. The first one is, do policymakers in China want to kill the property market? We do not think that is the case. Not because China, so the property market is a very big component of China's GDP, 20% direct, 30% indirect. Should that be killed as a sector? It means instant recession. So they don't want to kill it. Um, they just want to continue with the deleveraging. The other big question is, do they want to kill the offshore bond market? You know, the onshore become, remains intact, but the offshore market sort of collapses. Again, we don't think that sort of ties in well with what they've been doing in other places. China is opening up the capital markets. Look at the bonds, CGBs, huge inflows from foreign investors the past few years. Look at the equity market, MSCI inclusion, you know, stock and bond connect. So China is opening up its capital markets. And what we think is gradually going to happen is the onshore market refinancing the offshore market. But in the meantime... A lot of negative sentiment, the most unloved market, but that also creates a lot of opportunities, again, with very much on a security selection basis, because not all property developers are going to make it through. What about how Premier Li Keqiang has now stated that the target for GDP is going to be around 5.5% achievable, especially given the state or health of the property market? He has stated the 5.5%. It has surprised on the upside. Um, they've also noted themselves that it's going to be a difficult target to beat. And that's with the background of the property market still correcting, even if we are seeing easing now. You know, the past 
few months. We have seen easing both on the demand and the supply side. So I think property will become less of a headwind to China's GDP going forward. But another part of the market that's been very beneficial for China when it comes to the GDP is exports. Exports the past two years at a time when the entire world has been under lockdown and everyone has been in demand for goods rather than services and China has been producing all these goods. As a result, even if in absolute terms exports for China are not a big chunk of GDP, if you look at GDP contribution from exports the past two years, it has been the highest it has ever been in many, many, many years. So the export front, um, things are looking, you know, have been looking sort of strong. On the property front, um, you have, you know, it's been a headwind, but the easing that's coming through perhaps means that's going to be less of a headwind at some point, sort of later in the year, maybe second half, it sort of balances out. And then there's other areas that China is stimulating, areas such as infrastructure, which also ties in very well with what we were sort of discussing earlier about, you know, the green energy agenda. George, let's change beats for a minute. Yeah, the renminbi, uh, up until the last couple of days, has been on a really strong run. And I know China has guided a little bit lower today. But let's face it, you know, if we look over the last, uh, you know, couple of years, it's been a very strong performing currency. Um, what do you think this all means for you and for our clients, you know, at, at, for the currency and for China in, in the medium to longer term? So the, the, the renminbi has been strong, and I think it's even interesting that at the, you know, at the height of the geopolitical risk, sort of, you know, later stages of sort of February and early March, it actually ended up being the defensive currency. That's, you know, that ended up being the safe haven, unlike the yen, for instance. Now, China wants um, the renminbi to essentially take a, a more central stage in the world, whether it comes to trade, to financing, they, they want the renminbi to be a stable and strong currency. Um, that is definitely a key objective. And the opening up of the capital markets further supports that. If you look at, you know, flow, if you know, one of the key reasons the renminbi has been strong is because of the very, very strong flows into China government bond markets the past few years. Another reason why it's been very strong is because the past few years we've had very strong exports coming from China. So that's money, you know, that, you know, that definitely helps on the currency, on, on the balance of payments. At a time when China, you know, people in China, the population has not been able to get out, has not been able to spend um, the, the, the renminbi. So, you know, these are, um, uh, these are uh, elements that are, you know, continue to be um, in play. What could somewhat become of a, head, a bit of a headwind is growth differentials, right? Growth differentials between China and the U.S. are not going to be as, you know, as different as they have been the past two years. So, you know, the U.S. now is, is, is growing faster than China. But again, on a real basis, once you incorporate inflation, the story can be a little bit different. And the, for me, kind of the, the other thing I keep asking myself, would I want to be a central banker in the Fed or in the PBOC? Who's got the easier job? China has been following an orthodox monetary policy. The U.S., because of everything that's happened on COVID and now inflation, it's been a very different story. And typically, when it comes to orthodox policy, the currency follows that monetary policy. And George, you and I have talked about the level of exports out of China and whether that's sustainable over time and how currency plays into that. You know, what are your thoughts now about you know, common prosperity, which is clearly, you know, a lot of that is to increase domestic demand versus China is being able to export to the rest of the world, particularly in what's a fairly heightened geopolitical environment that we're, that we're living in right now. 
the, the China consumption story, I don't think, takes away anything from the export story. I think China wants to have you know, to be strong on, on, on both ends. But what I would say is that China has been in that sweet spot of the country has managed COVID for a long time very, very, very well. And as a result, has become the reliable supply chain partner. You know, the idea was during the U.S.-China trade war that you would end up seeing China dis no, disruption when it comes to China and supply chain. That has really not happened. If anything, again, China has been the most re reliable supply chain partner and China produces goods. That's what the world has wanted the past few years. So that has been a very strong tailwind for China. Is that going to continue? I guess the, the counter argument to that is that um, other parts of the, the, the world now, when it comes to COVID, they're dealing it, they're dealing better than, than, than China, one could argue. So they're now becoming more reliable sort of supply chain partners. And the other bit is when you're dealing with COVID better, then you expect to see um, a shift from goods to services. And that's not what China is exploring today. So these are somewhat of the headwinds to that export momentum that we have seen the past two, year, two years. Yeah, George, definitely some nuances. You know, though, guys, one of the biggest questions that global investors have about uh, the country's debt markets is how well or indeed how poorly the market identifies the price's credit risk. And obviously, this is an important topic because a lot of market participants view the government, either directly or indirectly, as the ultimate guarantor of debt, especially for state-owned as well as affiliated companies. So this, in turn, obviously creates moral hazards for bond investors. Marty, you know, do you think that the market's getting any better at pricing credit risk or, in fact, reigning in moral hazard? I mean, it's, you know, Catherine, it's such an important topic. And I think it links to what George talked about in the property sector, um, where we have seen a complete repricing of an individual sector. We have seen the government start to allow defaults to occur in onshore companies. And, you know, this is something you and I have talked about before around, you know, the idea of a state-owned enterprise defaulting. If we think about that two or three years ago, it wasn't even within the realm of what, uh, of what you know, people were talking about. Whereas today, uh, there is an expectation that the government will let state-owned enterprises default if, if the business models aren't supported. And and I think that's a really important dynamic for the market that's showing maturation of the market. And so, yes, I think is the answer to your question. We are starting to see uh, some ability to price in, uh, you know, these factors into the market. Yeah, and of course, the troubles at China Huarong Asset Management offers one recent high profile example that addresses a lot of the issues we're talking about here. So notably moral hazard and, and pricing credit risk. So Marty and George, I spoke with Claire Zhao, one of our Shanghai-based credit analysts earlier, who's been covering Huarong, China's largest bad debt manager. Claire, thanks so much for speaking with me. Could you start by telling us exactly what happened in the case of Huarong and how leveraged indeed were they? Yes. Huarong is one of the big four bad debt managers in China. They were set up back in the early 2000s to help China state banks to offload bad debt. It's majority owned by central government. So before everything happened, their government support was considered as very strong by both investors and rating agencies. And about four years ago, its previous chairman was put under investigation for corruption issue. Things like this sometimes happen, you know, so market didn't take it very seriously. 
but he was eventually convicted and executed last January. About two months after his execution, which is March 2021, the company surprised the market by not being able to publish its annual report in time. Plus, there were media reports saying that the company had a big loss and may need to go through restructuring or file for bankruptcy. There were a lot, a lot of guessing about what happened. And eventually, when Huarong published its annual report, they booked a $17 billion loss which is equivalent to nearly 90% of shareholders' equity. If no government support, the company would have filed for bankruptcy. So it appears, Claire, that there are lots of sort of red flags that the market perhaps missed because, to a degree, they strayed quite far from their original remit of helping to recover value from non-performing loans in the banking sector. Is, Is that a fair assumption? Yes, they started as a bad debt manager, but up until what happened, only about one-third of their business was bad debt management. When they were set up to help the state banks, there were no long-term plan regarding these uh, bad debt managers and what would they do after mission complete. So they started to do all kinds of things. They invest in stocks and PE funds, all kinds of complicated funds. It was very difficult for investors to figure out their underlying assets. They also bought uh, all kinds of financial institutions like small banks, security companies, and insurance companies, etc. They are trying to be financial conglomerate, and it makes regulatory oversight very difficult. And as a result, the government is now cracking down on this. So do you think there was a legitimate case to actually bail out Huarong? Or, like, for example, were they just too big to fail? And where should the government draw the line and actually let these companies fail? Arguably, I think it's not too big to fail. They don't take deposits or deal with retail, so there won't be bank run. They don't issue shorter notes, so its failure won't trigger liquidity shock to the interbank market. Before this Huarong case, Everybody thinks that the Chinese government has more tolerance about default and getting more selective about bailout, especially that China started to have some uh, state-owned company default in recent years. However, the direct bailout of Huarong makes people realize that there are still lines. At least for now, China is not ready to let go a central SOE like Huarong. Claire, you've highlighted a number of areas that potentially the market should have noticed or or picked up in terms of of the company. So if we take a step back, in in your view, what have been the lessons learned from Huarong? I'm not sure if if investors have learned much from this case, because if you look at market price, Huarong's bonds have recovered a lot. The perception of strong government support for these state-owned companies is still well-received by investors. In China, and in this case, even though some of these state-owned companies are not very efficient, they still can get enough money and it's still it's at very cheap cost. The good thing is that this can keep that rolling, avoid defaults, but the bad thing is that they are not necessarily helpful in terms of making profit or produce GDP from macro level. Uh, China is looking to fix this issue with a reform among state-owned companies, allowing more defaults, 
and more effective way of allocating capital, but it's going to be very gradual. This is because they don't want to rush things and cause systematic risk. For us investors, the important thing is to keep an eye on China's approach towards deleverage and how they balance between reform and risk. Claire, so interesting chatting to you. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Catherine, that, that was so interesting from Claire, wasn't it? And I think if you, if you listen to what she said about Huarong, and we think about juxtaposing that against what we're seeing in the market right now that George touched on about, and, and you know, if we think about one of the biggest property companies that's really been struggling lately, Evergrande, you know, where there hasn't been a bailout, it's sort of interesting to see the way Huarong progressed and the way Evergrande is really still pretty down, right? I guess we also have to take into consideration the emphasis that the Chinese government has on common prosperity and how they treat companies versus um, society. So it's an ever-evolving situation. And perhaps some of the volatility we are seeing at the moment is relating to this ongoing regulatory overhang at times, which might be headline news flow at first, but a lot of what they are doing in terms of the, the regulation does make quite a lot of sense at times. Yeah, I hear you. And, and and I think the other thing that I picked up from Claire was she mentioned a couple of times how China's going to approach this very gradually, right? I mean, you, you've been looking at these markets for so long. Does that does that fit with you? I mean, that, that sort of idea that there's not going to be a big bang approach here. We'll sort of do this on our own measures and, and, and on our own time. Yeah, and lending across a number of parts of the market. I mean, I'm sure... You're, I'm about to preempt you here, aren't I, in terms of not just mortgages, but uh, consumer lending. Absolutely, Catherine. And we've talked a lot about you know debt within fixed income markets, obviously, also around you know how debt applies across big and systematically important borrowers. But I think, as you've just mentioned, consumer lending is also a huge and growing piece of the puzzle here. So George is still here, um, but we also would love to welcome uh, Monica Lee, who's our Shanghai-based equities director. And she's going to discuss a little bit more on this consumer lending topic. So hi, Monica. How are you? Hi, Marty. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us about the current trends you're seeing in China when it comes to consumer lending. And what do you think of the implications for investors? Yeah, sure. So firstly, on consumer trend, I'm, a pre- um, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not a pretty picture. So we have been seeing slowdown in the consumption trend across the board since fourth quarter last year. Um, and most recently, we're seeing a tick up in the reported growth number uh, in January and February combined. But with the new lockdown measures being introduced, I think March will be weakened again. Um, so this obviously has negative implication on the consumer lending. Um, as a matter of fact, since last year, we are seeing continuous weakness in the mid to long term consumer lending, which is, I believe, partly related to the property downturn we talked about, as well as lack of uh, confidence in the longer term future. Yeah, so I guess there will be a level of caution for investors uh, out of those um, rather bleak consumption uh, pictures, as well as for consumer lending. Albeit bleak, Monica, I mean, um, when we take into consideration the border restrictions, I mean, I, I can't even remember the last time you and I caught up and were out on the road together seeing companies and, and just sort of assessing daily lives and society in China. Um, your base there, is, as Marty highlighted, in Shanghai, but... What about internet penetration? Because 
yes, we're seeing a slowdown in retail, etc. But penetration internet-wise continues to grow. So how does this play into internet lending? And how is it different to, let's say, credit cards? Yeah, sure. So people with um, regular income um, and a stable job can easily get bank card, uh, credit cards from the banks. Um, and the overdraft rate is around uh, 15 to 18 percent per uh, annual. Um, and if you can get consumer loan from the banks, it's even cheaper at around five to six percent rate per annum. So it's pretty easy for those with a stable job. But for those people with less stable income, um, they cannot get a credit card from the banks easily. So they often resort to the internet lending um, to buy nice things for themselves, uh, which they cannot afford right now with their own savings and income. So as you said, internet lending penetration has been rising over the past five years, I would say. Um, but internet uh, lending rate used to be pretty high at over 40 or 50 percent. It was really aggressive. Um, so that's when the regulation comes in. So now the regulator has set the new ceiling for the lending rate uh, for internet lending at below 24 percent. And obviously, um, governments are looking at this issue and they want to lower the burden for those borrowers so they do not um, suffer from the so-called over-leveraging issue as they uh, borrow uh, out of their means. I'm intrigued. So we have this limit in terms of, of the credit um, amount, but you referred to nice um, things people are, are spending in terms of these small consumer loans. So what are they? <laughs> Yeah, all kinds of nice things you can think of, like digital gadgets uh, for like iPhone or smartwatch um, and even cosmetic surgery. Right. So we have heard colorful stories of young ladies. Um, they want to become pretty uh, and they were kind of tricked by the clinics because clinics have the incentive to work with those Internet lenders um, to um, lend to those uh, young ladies to spend more on those cosmetic surgeries uh, which they may or may not need. So this has actually been picked up by the media and picked up by the regulators as well since last year and we are seeing increasing regulation in this area. So hopefully those malpractices will be reduced going forward. Monica, you know, George just walked us through um, a huge increase in leverage across the property sector and you know, now the government is very, very focused on that and aware of the high levels of leverage. What are the regulators looking at here, do you think? And are they focused on household leverage, not just from mortgages, but from other sources, like some of the things you just you just ran us through? Yeah, sure. Uh, consumer lending is definitely an area that they are looking at. So uh, regulators are very much concerned about over leveraging for consumers and households. Um, so over a year ago, the regulators summoned the banks to disclose their data on co-lending with end financial in particular. And I think regulators nowadays are paying more and more attention to this overall internet lending space um, because previously, I would say two years ago, the internet lenders were a bit flying below the radar, uh, but now they're being picked up. Um, and there is also the concern on so-called multiple lending phenomenon. Um, this is where people borrow from both from the banks perhaps on their credit cards and also from multiple internet lenders. Um, and you can see that if the banks and the internet lenders do not share information and do not talk with each other, um, there could be some trouble for the banking system several years down the line. So I'm glad that the regulators are picking this up. What about mortgage lending though, Monica? I mean, is, is this a, a large chunk of household debt in China? 
and how significant are Chinese mortgages for the actual banking system? Yeah, mortgages has grown pretty significantly um, uh, in the past decade, I would say. So now they're around 30% of banks' loan books, so that's pretty big. Um, in end 2020, uh, regulators have introduced new caps on property-related loans for the banks. So the cap is 30% for mortgage as percentage of loan book and 10% for developer loans as percentage of bank loan book. Um, so I think all those new caps are just to uh, prevent uh, banks from being overexposed to the property exposure and also to prevent the property sector from growing too fast and too big. How have these caps, though, impacted the supply of mortgages? So before this, those new caps were introduced, um, supply of mortgage was never an issue because it's always in such hot um, demand because people are just um, waiting to, to buy properties. Uh, since end of 2020, when the new cap was introduced, it's getting longer and harder for people to get mortgage um, to be approved by their banks. Um, and now, uh, most recently, uh, as George mentioned, we're seeing signs of relaxation on the mortgage front um, as well. So actually, for, for each city, they also have their own rules, um, like how many properties you can buy, uh, in addition to the mortgage restrictions. So for example, some cities uh, forbid you from owning a third house, um, like in, in Shanghai, where I am now. Um, but when the new rules were introduced, um, people were also kind of being creative to find other ways to fund their homes, like they were using other um, types of loans, like consumer loans, which are actually illegal and are being picked up by the regulators. And some people are also creative in a way that they file for divorce, um, so they become first-time buyers if they have maxed out, out the number of apartments they own as a couple. But those loopholes are increasingly being plugged by the local regulators. So, George, I, I want to bring you back into this. So, and let's get a little bit, you know, sort of fixed income technical here. Um, you know, one of the things that we focus on is securitization of loans, right? And that's gone from being a very dirty word, if we think back to the global financial crisis, to, you know, I think the way the way securitized assets are built today with proper diversification. They're actually good instruments that investors are looking at to, to help, you know, to help with management of, of, of portfolios. What do you see on that in China? And do you see a market there? Do you, you know, do you see it developing? Are you investing in it? It's not a market that is, I'd say, in the radar of you know asset managers, global asset managers, global multi-asset investors, even or even fixed income investors, because Usually, one thinks about their investable universe, and that is typically defined by you know the, the, the key benchmarks. So we think of what used to be the Lehman Global Lag and the Barclays Global Lag. Now it's sort of the Bloomberg Global Lag. And if you look at the, its composition, there is a securitized market. When you look at sort of mortgages, you know MBS, APS, auto loans, consumer loans, there is a chunky part of the index that falls in that basket. But that's very much a U.S.-driven and a bit of a European market. There's nothing in China um, right now. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but from a benchmark perspective, it's not there. If I take, you know, a couple of years ago, China government bonds, um, where everyone knew they were coming to indices, that creates liquidity, that creates visibility. They came into indices, and now, you know, some of the key indices have up to 10% in China government bonds, Right. That really means that they've been established elements of indices. 
that is not the case for anything um, on um, you know when, when it comes to securitization in China. Could it happen in the future? Perhaps. But the other aspect there is whatever's going on in China to actually fit with the narrative and the structure that the Western world knows about, because it is a different market and it's structured very different in China. So that's going to be something that's going to definitely be interesting to watch. George, there is a lot of concerns about the current narrative that you mentioned when it comes to Chinese capital markets. Um, we've seen a lot of volatility recently. How concerned are you? And in fact, Monica, I'm going to ask you the same thing from an equities perspective. Should should we be concerned here or, or is it just sort of a, a moment to really identify the opportunities as well as taking into consideration the risk? But how do you both feel? I mean, I, I can sort of kick off first and I'll probably say that markets fundamentally do not like uncertainty. And there's been plenty of uncertainty last year in terms of intentions on the policy side, you know, the, the, from the three red lines to the three mountains to everything that's going on that has created this uncertainty. Um, most market participants sort of think that we're past peak reform in China. There's probably still a little bit more to go. And this is a big reason why we're seeing the volatility that we are seeing. But that also means that there's an immense level of value creation across the capital structures uh, structure in China, again, on both on the equity and the credit side. But it also means that it will come with a lot of volatility. So one has to incorporate that in the risk management portfolio construction. So I, I would argue you know, it's more of a how you construct your portfolio to take advantage of the, portfolio, of the opportunities and size it accordingly, rather than whether you should have it at all or not. Monica, what about you? Being on the ground in Shanghai, do the domestic investors also share these concerns from a volatility point of view? Yeah, definitely we're seeing uh, more so-called headwinds from everywhere, so that introduced uh, another level of volatility. Um, but I think we need to look at those headwinds uh, from whether they're really structural here to stay or whether they're cyclical, like COVID, uh, it's not uh, to stay here forever, right? So we have to look at whether some of the companies have completely lost their um, competitive edge. So there could be some permanent loss of capital. But for some other companies, uh, because of the cost uh, inflation, because of the tough regulation, the supply side has actually um, been gotten better, much better than before. So that could um, spell good news for the those uh, leaders uh, in the mid to long term. So there could be some bottom fishing opportunities. So yeah, it really depends. It could be good news and bad news out of volatilities. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to our guests, George F. Savopoulos and Monica Lee, and to our other contributors, Olivia Her and Claire Zhao. Marty, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I think before you know it, we are definitely going to be finishing each other's sentences. Indeed we are, and uh, look forward to the next one. And look, I'd like to turn to our listeners and say thank you. Uh, if you'd like to read more of what we've been covering today, please go to your local Fidelity website or to fidelityinternational.com. The producers today were Roy Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Seb Morton-Clark and Keith Chen. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us here at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. 
It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.